If you could do one thing for brain health, it would be sleep and sleep consistently and sleep deeply. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Britt Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. Dr. Crystal Dilworth, also known as Dr. Brain on the popular CBS show Mission Unstoppable, is a neuroscientist, addiction expert, and a vocal advocate for women in STEM. She's here today to teach us about the chemical messengers in the brain that influence our mood and the science behind habit building. Buckle up for a fun and stimulating conversation that is sure to leave you feeling smarter and more in tune with what's happening inside your head. Welcome, Crystal. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I'm always fascinated to talk to neuroscientists, but before you were a neuroscientist, you were a professionally trained modern dancer. Is this correct? Yes, absolutely. I was. I sort of grew up feeling pulled in two opposite directions because I was a victim of the stereotype that you have to be a science person or not a science person and you can't be both. And so I really struggled with that for most of my life because I loved dancing, but I also loved science. Um, And it actually, after undergrad, I got my degree in biochemistry from UCSD. And then I moved to New York to be a professional dancer and I was gonna leave science behind, but I couldn't quite do that. And I was actually on the train uptown to Columbia to watch a chemistry department seminar, skipping dance class when I realized, eh, you know, maybe I need to pay attention to this sort of like shift in priorities, like the data is telling me something. And that's actually the moment that I decided to go to graduate school. Oh, wow. I mean, I think that's a big struggle that we all have to fight at some point. I was a dancer and a soccer player, not a scientist (laughs) growing up, though, not like when I was 20. And I remember having to choose and it felt so, so hard. So I can't imagine science and dance, um, two totally distinct opportunities for you. And so now you're one of, you know, pretty few women in neuroscience. Do you ever feel lonely or does it actually feel empowering that you get to represent, you know, half the population in a field that doesn't have half the population? I mean, I think that science and medicine, you know, we are starting to realize the massive holes and gaps in our understanding that have arisen because we haven't paid attention to specific populations, be that women or, you know, other genetic backgrounds, other, you know, racial backgrounds. And so it really takes all kinds to be able to contribute to the universal pool of knowledge. I mean, I certainly have had and continue to have the experience of being the only woman in the room, as I'm sure you yourself have experienced multiple times. Yeah, it's not that different in Silicon Valley. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. Um, but I think that neuroscience, although it's a highly technical field, with its accessibility through biology and human behavior, is actually... Uh, more accepting, maybe, of women in the field than, say, quantum physics. Mm -hmm. Well, 
that's quantum physics is a whole different conversation we can come back to have at a different time on this podcast. <laughs> so, so let's get into addiction. I know a lot of your research has been rooted in this field. Mm-hmm. So um, I think when, when I say addiction, I, I think people's brains go straight to, oh, nicotine and alcohol. And obviously those are addictive things. We've learned about that in life, but there are a lot of other addictions too. Um, so we'll get to the other addictions, but I guess we'll just start with the easy ones. Nicotine. What's happening to our brain when we become addicted to something? And is it different based on the type of drug, quote unquote, nicotine, alcohol, sex, etc.? So there's obviously similarities. And then based on what you are addicted to, the mechanism is going to be different. Like how you get there, it will be different. But what there looks like, which is overactivation of what neuroscientists would call the dopamine reward system, which is that positive feedback loop that kind of hijacks dopamine's role in the brain. Um, And there's clinical components to that, but as a neuroscientist, I'm really looking at two of the like biological um, components. One would be uh, the behavioral impact due to learning and memory. So we learn that this is preferable, uh, this drug is preferable, for instance, to other things, um, and we remember how we feel when we're when we're on it, and what who we were with, and where we were, and all of that matters. Um, And then there's the actual chemical response in the brain. And that was sort of my PhD thesis was looking at specific protein level changes that happen in your brain when you're exposed to nicotine. So you smoke one cigarette and your body goes, interesting, I might get that again. And it actually changes the proteins that certain neurons in your brain make to be able to respond better and differently the next time. Um, And it takes a while once you are accustomed, you know, once you're a smoker, it takes a while, maybe never, but it certainly takes a long time for your brain to go back to that uh, original protein composition. Yeah. And so like for smoking, let's just stick on that for a second. Hmm. How many times do I need to smoke a cigarette to become addicted? That depends on your genetic background. It depends on your environment. It depends on your age. It depends on a lot of things. So then just in the world of addiction, what are the most common addictions? And are there micro addictions? I don't know that you can really have a micro addiction. So you think about the addiction cycle, you're talking about administration, so exposure to the behavior or to the drug. Then you have to, you're looking at a withdrawal profile. So you you feel um, physically bad when you are in the absence of the drug. So there's definitely like, look, anyone that's tried to cold turkey coffee will know that you know you definitely feel withdrawal. Um, then there's the craving, and then there's eventually tolerance, which means it takes more and more of that behavior or that substance to get the same effect. And actually that effect starts diminishing even as you start increasing your exposure. So in order to follow that specific cycle, I don't think you can really do that on a micro level. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know the role of dopamine in our brains is to motivate us to do things you know that that is that is dopamine's sole purpose really is to keep us alive by telling us when things are good for us and that means keeping us alive not necessarily making us happy 
Um, so mm. anything that you that uh, inspires dopamine release in the brain is potentially addictive. So food and sex and video games because of the, the novelty. You know, dopamine is also released in novel stimulating environments. So like, you know, Disneyland or a video game. Oh, so I can be addicted to Disneyland? Yeah. Potentially? Yeah. Okay. I think that's a healthy addiction. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are there healthy addictions? Are, are, are addictions healthy? I think this is a basic question, but I'm sort of now confused. When we use the term addiction, we're talking about a chronic but treatable medical condition. Um, okay. Uh, dependence would be a word that someone um, that studies it at my level, since I'm not a clinician, uh, would call, you know, so I talk about nicotine dependence more than I talk about nicotine addiction, for instance. But, you know, I don't know that we necessarily have healthy addictions by today's societal standards, but evolution certainly thought that making us addicted to sleep and sex and food was a great idea because that's how we stayed alive and continued the species. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So I understand how addiction happens, but how hard is it to break an addiction once one has formed? I mean, it's really hard. I mean, again, anyone, I tried to, I, I will admit, I did this experiment for myself. I tried to cold turkey coffee, you know, just like, well, what happened was I was working on a project. I'm sure, yeah, you've had this experience and it was really challenging project, but it had like a culminating event. And then the next day, because I had been drinking six cups of coffee a day, I was like, you know what? For the last month and a half, I'm not sure if I was initiating like thoughts, feelings, and actions, or if the coffee was doing it for me. Let's find out. And so I just stopped drinking coffee for about five or six months. And it took, oh God, I want to say five or six weeks before like the world had color again. So yes, it's really difficult to break an addiction. I mean, that's why we have an opioid epidemic and that's why smoking is the world's leading preventable cause of death is because it's so hard once these cycles start to, it's kind of like being in the roundabout from hell and like you're in the wrong lane and you can never find the off ramp, you know, being trapped in, in that cycle. I mean, from nicotine's perspective, you know, 73% of smokers say that they want to stop but only 5% succeed without some type of assistance. So, mm -hmm. you know, this is incredibly difficult. Can you talk about social media addiction? Is that an actual addiction that we have? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a manipulation of your dopamine system. I mean, I don't know if you, you'd have to fit it to the model to know if it's like a formal you know, addiction, but certainly for some people, it definitely is, you know, they will choose social media over other things uh, like natural um, 
the natural high of sex, food, social interaction, taking care of your young, all of all of that. Um, but I, that's by design, isn't it? It's, I know. It's, I know. It's, no, it is. And it's like the same thing with our phones outside of social media. It's just like the notifications, the alerts, like every single buzz we get is a dopamine hit. Right. And so one of the things that me and my husband do is like we literally turn off all notifications on every app of our phone. And I use do not disturb quite frequently as a, as a setting on my phone. And I, I just really try to not let my phone run my brain <laughs> from a dopamine perspective. And it's really hard. And I think that too many people out there in the world have all their notifications turned on. They've got red dots everywhere. They're buzzing all the time. And it is just like a total shit show in their head. <laughs> um, I can't imagine. Yeah, I think that it will be really interesting to see this that what I call the Alexa generation, you know, like the, the, the babies that have always known a robot that will respond to them if they just shout out at it from, from the living room, right? Um, my children are these people. Yes, yes. <laughs> my uh, son literally asks Alexa what the weather is every morning when he wakes up. Oh, that's so cute. That's how he gets dressed. <laughs> and, you know, but maybe he, I'm programming him the wrong way. Is this No, bad? but what is the wrong way, right? Like society evolves, culture evolves. We build this technology. And the whole point of evolution is that the brain adapts. So yes, the way that brains are being developed to respond to this type of, you know, technological dopamine shower, a <laughs> shower of dopamine, um, it's happening. Like, but what will that mean for human interaction, social interaction down the road? I don't know. I also don't think that trying to stop it is that great of an idea. I am actually excited about new types of social networks and new types of thinking around phones happening. You know, we've got Clubhouse now, which is an audio only social network. They don't intend to do advertising. Um, it's listening instead of staring at a screen and looking at visual stimulation. And it just feels more human in that way. And then, you know, I'm an investor and one of the companies that I've invested in is, is still stealth and I can't say much about it, but they're trying to reinvent what comes after the phone. And it's not a thing you hold in your hand. It's not a thing you put in your eyes. It's not contact lenses or Google glasses or any of those things. And it's like a much more humanistic way to use technology to connect with people um, to sort of superpower you without the stimulants and the addiction. So I'm excited about where technology can be going. Mm -hmm. And let's switch gears and talk about habits. So mm -hmm. how do habits differ from addictions? So habits are about choices. Addictions are about the lack of choice. Um, and so we can build habits um, and building habits is not activating the dopamine system per se, um, but we can kind of use what we know about the dopamine system to in, like improve our habit consistency. Um, but it's about um, making some pathways in the brain more attractive than others. You know, the term brains are lazy is not accurate, but brains take the easiest path the most optimized path. And so, you know, if you had a choice between a dirt path 
in the jungle with the machete or, you know, the carpool lane <laughs> in a multi-lane freeway, you're probably going to get where you're going faster on the freeway. And so building a habit is really taking the, the path that you want to be the easiest, fastest, most optimized one and repeating it consciously over and over again enough times that that is the pathway that becomes the unconscious choice and then you can kind of go on autopilot. So that's why it takes so long and so much deliberate conscious effort to be able to build that. And I've always heard it takes 21 days to make or break a habit. Is that scientific? <laughs> Is that There's a book about this called, Hab I think, The Power of Habits or something like that that says this. I never actually looked into the research, so I don't know if there's like a set number of days, but certainly practice and consistency is the most important thing. Um, I would think that there's probably some variation brain to brain. Well, I was thinking about it because I'm like, is it 21 days or 21 cycles of a habit? Or, you know, if I want to become a runner, do I run every day for 21 days or do, can I run 21 times? <laughs> run once work? every three weeks. There's the habit. Right, do I need to run? Yeah, exactly. Um, I'll make this a habit. I wish it well, and like I think that. it's Exactly. Well, everyone that, you know, probably has dropped off from their New Year's resolutions right now because their their habit that they chose has probably not sustained. Um, you know, I think the majority of people can't sustain a new habit, which is oh. why we have fad diets and all of these things. That's one of my favorite graphs is like gym attendance between like January and March, like the first quarter of the year, you know, and it's like everybody's going and then there's like a drastic dip and then it spikes right before Valentine's Day <laughs> and then it goes oh, down. Oh, really? Yeah, because I read in the data that it's February 8th is the day where it it finally like drops off the cliff. Um, yeah. So people are good for like four to five weeks, which, by the way, disputes the whole 21 day theory. There you um, go. <laughs> so I don't know, but you know, I think for me, I did this thing a couple of years ago called give it a week where I had all these things I wanted to try or learn. So I just chose a new thing every week and I did it each day for seven days. And it was kind of like a micro habit, I guess you could say. And I, I just got to like try new things. I tried diets. I tried learning new creative things. I tried um, changing my lifestyle, having no social media, for instance, having no phone, for instance, going blonde like all kinds of things to try it on in my life and at least get a little bit of repetition behind me to understand if it was something I could stick with or if it was going to be a total flop. And the variance was quite large. Like some of them were much easier and others were very difficult. So I can understand that there might be a spectrum of habits, quote unquote, that are easier or harder to stick to. But then again, and then based on your neurotype and your experiences and genetics and all the things, it's, it's probably a big tangled mess. Am I somewhat accurate there? So when you ran this experiment, this was recently, this was during the pandemic times. It was, a, it was before the pandemic. Before like the, the pandemic. Before. Mm -hmm. This is an amazing hack for the pandemic times. Like um, amazing, you know, because the variety and the short-term focus attention on new things um, is an incredible way to trick your brain into thinking that every day is not the same and that it's not missing out on the world. I think that's, I mean, it's an amazing experiment yeah. anyway, but for a, a pandemic project, that, that would have been like perfect. 
I know. And I did think about repeating it during the pandemic, but because I have kids, oh, yeah. <laughs> no childcare and all the things, I was like, I can't throw one more thing on my plate. But to your point, I, you can ask my husband, you can ask all my best friends. Like I was a different person the year I was doing this, like literally not just because of these projects, but to your point, it was like, my mood was different. The days felt mm-hmm. different. I was stimulated every day. Um, you know, I think so often we as adults get into these habitual routines of life where it's like, okay, I wake up at this time, I do my breakfast, I go to work, I come home, I, you know, have dinner, put my kids to bed or watch a Netflix show and then repeat. And like how boring that that's the life we live every day for years, right? Like what if there were more? What if you could expose yourself to it to a hundred new things that you never would have thought about? And we keep saying that like one day I'll learn how to play golf or one day I'll learn how to do photography or one day I'll, I'm going to try to do, to go from dark brunette to blonde, like, and you never do like, because you don't have anything that's pressuring you to. So the give it a week challenge, everybody, (laughs) Crystal's officially endorsing it. You can try it for yourself. It's an amazing thing for your brain. On the, and on the subject of like pandemic and how to build habits, like first off, I want to say that the, this idea of lazy it comes with like so much like almost religious moral (laughs) judgment that I think like needs to stop. Like there's not really such a thing as a lazy brain. There is lack of sufficient incentive. So when you're talking about building habits or changing habits and behaviors, you have to think about like, what's your, not your on paper, you know, like your, your thinking brain, your core, you know, prefrontal cortex motivation to change your behavior, but like your, uh, your actual evolutionary motivation. Like, I'm not going to do things that I don't care about. So like, you know, if you're thinking about changing your habits, like number one is to like reframe the motivation. Like if you are trying not to eat ice cream every night, you know, go going to carrot sticks is not going to work. You know, but saying I, if I, you know, don't eat ice cream and I eat my carrot sticks, then I get one chocolate kiss. So instead of half a pint of <laughs> Rocky Road, right. you get one kiss. And so you, you still get the dopamine, but you're substituting the behavior, you know, and then the enriched environment, I think is really, really important. And what you're talking about with your week, one, you know, week challenge is really enriching your environment. And I think that during the pandemic, we lost some of that because we weren't getting the novelty, we weren't getting the social interaction and social inclusion can be so important for self-esteem um, and can really, I mean, we have there's a whole side of the brain that we're not talking about that is focused on social inclusion and positive feedback from being in a group. And so if you can activate that, the power of that, which you know led to human culture and all of these things, get an accountability buddy you know, talk to somebody about your experiences. Those are really important ways that you can start to actually make progress on shifting a behavior. So the pandemic has obviously created a lot of anxiety within us. Is there anything we can do for our brains, for our bodies to help us move through anxiety more easily? Yes and no. Anxiety is something that I struggle with. So this question is like really close to my heart. And I will say that like sometimes knowing better doesn't help. 
<laughs> like I can, I can tell you exactly what's going on in my brain, but that doesn't like stop the fact that I am in fact having a panic attack. Um, when we're talking about anxiety and fear, um, we're talking about you know really deep evolutionary mechanisms. We're talking about the neurotransmitter norepinephrine. We're talking about acetylcholine. These are chemicals. Uh, cortisol is another you know hormone that's that's involved in in anxiety. These are chemicals that are involved in the fight or flight mechanism. So you know something has told your body or your brain that you are in danger of dying, and there's lots of things that can spark that. Social exclusion can spark that. You know, um, times of extreme uncertainty and change where you just don't feel safe can also spark that. So I think that there's definitely been an uptick of depression and anxiety um, during the pandemic for, men, for, for many reasons. And I think it's really important to remind ourselves that our brains evolve to keep us alive, but not to make us happy. So, you know, what got us here is not going to get us there. And so when you're experiencing that fight or flight or freeze, sometimes it's freeze, which can be even worse, uh, reaction, um, understanding that it, that's the evolutionary mechanism, that there is a way to step up back into your more executive processing place and, and finding what that is for yourself. You know, for some people it's meditation. For some people it's taking a walk. Um, for me, um, I really have to take a full sensory approach um, because emotions are sometimes our way of adding meaning to physical feedback that we're getting. Like the data is physical, right? Like you're ready to fight or flee. And then you have an emotion about it. And you know, we call that fear and anxiety. So for me, anything that's physical, so changing the temperature in the room, taking a bath, going for a walk, um, lighting a scented candle, you know, and doing some deep breathing exercises, changing the lighting, um, using all five senses, um, eating a mint sometimes is just oh, the, interesting. Just, yeah, I used to do that when I was in. Um, uh, in undergrad, if I was falling asleep in classes, I would have like a bag of sugar or a bag of uh, really, really strong Dutch. Like Altoids? <laughs> Altoids. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Like King Peppermints, if anybody knows what those are. Um, what and does that do to you? I've never heard that before. Well, it, it shifts your attention, right? So, oh. it, you know, if you have, if you put something really spicy or, you know, um, that, that takes, takes your sense, sensory attention really briefly away, it allows you to refocus back on the lecture. So, Ooh, you know, for, for I'm me, gonna I light just... some candles and eat some mints. This sounds great. <laughs> um, well, and I love what you were saying about cortisol. I actually, so um, I was talking to my therapist recently and, and I was saying like, I feel, you know, pretty stressed out lately, but I'm also like really chill with it. Like I'm very aware and conscious of it. And she was like, oh, well, that's because you're an island. And I was like, what? I'm, and she was like, yeah, you know, you're either an island or a wave or an anchor. And I was like, I've never heard this theory before. And so apparently there are three types of people, the islands, the waves, and the anchors. And the islands are clearly people like me who very solid ground, you know, you could throw anything at me. I will handle it. Um, but apparently she told me, she's like, the thing about islands is that you we've actually measured their uh, chemicals in their blood 
versus the waves and the anchors, and they actually have the most cortisol running through their blood at all times. The thing is, they just like know how to suppress it really well. And and the problem is islands don't know how to like extract emotion and like let the cortisol out. And so even though you look like you got it all together, there's a pocket in you that doesn't. And I was like, sweet, thanks. Well, I'm glad I'm actually in therapy so we could talk about this. And then okay. like my like my husband is like a wave apparently where it's just like there's these waves of emotions that just happen all the time. And he's like very emotional and like, um, but so his like anxiety and stress is just constant, but it's like very obvious and open. And then the anchors, I didn't get the total download on it, but like, I think they they like have to go super, super deep to um, like they're harder to access. Um, and and so um, they actually they store it in, I guess, in a different way. But I was just fascinated by this idea that I have more cortisol in my blood than my husband, for instance, when like I feel like I've got like calm and cool and collected <laughs> Brit over here. And I was like, this is why this is why therapy is amazing. So I love it. It's like being, do you being, agree with any of this? Is this like making sense to you? I've never heard this model, but I'm not unfamiliar with sort of personality typing, you know, that happens in in psychology. But I think it's interesting that perhaps like the the increased rise in, in cortisol is really like that buffering for you, like so that you can push through and the the stress relief that your husband feels from being able to express and, and move through that more quickly is probably allowing cortisol to kind of happen in a more uh, wave-like in, in, yeah, wave-like pattern. It, I mean, it, it yeah. makes sense. I can't say if it's, you know, like the research backs it yeah. up. But. I don't need you to scientifically validate it with a stamp. I'm just, <laughs> for anyone listening who might be an island or a wave, now you can actually feel justified in yourself. Um, so... So what is happening, though, to our brains when we're stressed out or we're sleep deprived? Um, Like what is there a chemical imbalance there? Well, I think stress and sleep are connected, but not the same. So um, I have a good friend of mine, Allie Ward, who hosts the Ologies podcast, and we talk about stress and anxiety. She calls her amygdala, which is the tiny region that's sort of responsible for managing the emotions around stress and fear. She calls it her screaming almond of death. Because <laughs> she, she experiences, you know, all of this anxiety and it's like this area is like really hyper and I, and I totally get that. So for stress, it's really like activation of those like emergency systems, those survival systems is meant to be a short term thing. I will say that biologically um, and neuroscience, you can have good and bad stress. Um, so, you know, sometimes you need good stressors in order to push through, uh, you know, to grow, to create new neural connections. So that can happen. But right now, you know, in colloquial like terms, stress always means something negative. Now, sleep is huge. Sleep is when your brain cleans house. Without sleep, you will end up, it's like never cleaning your house. Eventually, it looks like a hoarder and, you know, function is absolutely diminished, if not impossible. So you need good sleep. You need consistent sleep. Uh, Studies have shown that your mom was right. You can't actually catch up on sleep. So sleeping 
a smaller number of hours, but the same number of hours consistently is better than, you know, two days a week getting 14 hours of sleep and the rest getting three. Um, and it's what you're, do what you're doing when you're sleeping is you're synthesizing, you're adding meaning to things that happened. You are creating new memories. You are clearing out your hard drive so that it makes space for the things that really matter. Uh, you, you know, if you could do one thing for brain health, it would be sleep and sleep consistently and sleep deeply. Ooh. Yeah, I'm a big fan of sleep and I track my sleep. I track my deep sleep, my REM sleep. I've got the aura ring. I've got the sleep mattress pad. I'm like all about sleep track. We actually have a podcast about sleep. If anyone wants to go back and listen to it, um, it's called Better Sleep uh, is the name of the nice. episode. So go back and look for that. Um, I guess lastly on mood, like what are some tips for boosting mood other than get good sleep that we might not have thought about from a scientific perspective? Um, I think that one of the things that we look in answering this question, I feel bad because I really want to add something that's like revolutionary and super high tech at like this esoteric idea about this is the way that you should think about mood, but like eat fresh nutrient dense foods, sleep consistently, drink water, go for a walk. Go outside you know, in the sun. <laughs> expose yourself to sunlight. Not, I'm not saying go and get a tan, but what I'm saying is let yourself appreciate when the sun is up and when the sun is going down. Like pay attention to those transitions to reinforce your circadian rhythm so that you can get better sleep. Um, I'm saying this at almost 3 a.m. in Jakarta, so I am not following my own advice, but this is, you know, these are the things that, that you really can do and if those things are not working and if the habit and behavioral um, change approaches that we've discussed are not working, go and see somebody that can help. Yes, Just do totally, it. 100%. This has been so fun. What are some of your favorite brain stats that we might've missed during our chat? Is there anything like really fascinating that you've come across in all of your time studying the brain? Well, two things come to mind. One is that, you know, most of the research that I did um, was in cells that were grown on a dish. But the cool thing about those dish, the cells in those dishes is that they were expressing fluorescent proteins. So my uh, studying of that one subunit of that one receptor, et cetera, et cetera, was really like following it around by shooting it with lasers and then taking pictures of like where the fluorescence did. So I, I tell high school students that like, I'm a neuroscientist, but I really make brains glow in the dark. <laughs> pretty cool. <laughs> which, which, is, which is pretty cool. But since, yeah. since then, techniques have evolved. Um, and there's a, there's a Caltech professor, Viviana Gradinaro, who actually will take an entire intact brains, clear the cholesterol and um, the sugars and everything out of them. So you have only the fibrous, uh, uh, materials and it looks like a clear jelly, like a clear gummy bear, basically. So it's oh. completely clear 
And then those brains, mouse brains, of course, not human brains, are expressing fluorescent proteins. And you can shoot those brains with lasers and you can see whole structures of like selectively labeled fluorescent in a in a whole organ. And, you know, for years we've been learning about the brain by cutting brains open and slicing them up and taking a look. So to be able to study a whole or intact organ non-invasively completely through making your brain clear and then shooting it with lasers and watching it glow in the dark is probably one of my favorite (laughs) techniques out there. This is amazing. I actually hadn't heard of this, but I know that we know so little about the brain and it's incredible. Like I've been studying creativity as part of Britain Co. for 10 years. We literally don't know where in the brain creativity comes from the whole right brain, left brain thing is sort of obscure. Like, and, and I was fascinated by how little we know about the the most powerful organ in our body outside of our heart. So this is really, really cool. And hopefully this creates a lot of opportunity to learn more about what triggers, what, and, and how we can start connecting the dots between these hundred billion neurons. It's it's highly complex, right? Yeah. And if you just want to look at some really pretty brain pictures, type rainbow into your Google image search. Rainbow. I love this. Rainbow. And you'll see all of these different fluorescent neurons all labeled different colors. And it'll like introduce you to this technicolored world of fluorescent proteins in brains. And, you know, that's the world that, that I live in. I love it. I love it. Crystal Dilworth, thank you so much for being here with us. What is the one piece of homework you would give to our listeners this week? It could be mood or habit or addiction related. Ooh, try sleeping with your phone in another room. Ooh, give it a week, you guys. Try sleeping with your phone in another room. I've never done that. I'm not, I'm just going to say that. So I will do this. I'll report back. Okay, Crystal, yes. thank you so much for being here with us. And where can we find you? I am at HD on most social media platforms and on uh, CBS Saturday mornings on the show Mission Unstoppable as Dr. Brain. Love it. Love it. Thanks so much, Crystal. Oh, thank you for having me. This was fun. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Ali Ives and Ali Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjazy and Aaron Peterson. <laughs>